next case was presented by Dr. Noor Merchant to Drs. Goldberg and Wolf. He was very active golfer and he was a retired managing director of a big corrugated box company and he had like 10, 15 plants under his care when he was active. But now he was retired and very active playing golf and playing croquet on the weekends. What was his attitude and his wife's attitude about the cancer and the possibility of being treated with adjuvant therapy? When I saw him, he already had the surgery done, but he was feeling weak and tired. And I explained to him the risk of relapse, and I told him that most likely he will come back with the disease. At that time, he was not too keen. He said, let's wait and watch. Okay, I want to start with Bob and find out a little bit about what else you'd want to find out. 85-year-old man with four positive nodes. One of the things I always like to know, particularly in these T4 type situations, is number one, did we have an opportunity to have a preoperative scan? And where exactly was he positive? I mean, bladder, pelvic sidewall. These issues, at least in terms of planning treatment, are important. I'm I don't want to say liberal, but I have a pretty low threshold with a T4 lesion, depending on what made it T4, to consider some radiation as part of a strategy for a patient. He had preoperative CAT scan, and that was negative. The margins were positive in the pelvic wall area. So a bulky mass could not be seen on CT? Yeah. But he was positive at the pelvic wall. So the other question I have is, how far out from surgery did you see him? Because a lot of times what happens, I think, I hope not too many surgeons hear this tape. (laughs) They will. (laughs) Surgeons basically have a tendency, I think, to say you're healed visibly. You're not febrile. Your wound looks good. I need to hand you off. And by the way, I need to hand you off as soon as I can to somebody else. And I think we... Often we'll see patients, what I think is prematurely. They're not ready to talk about chemotherapy. They're not ready to talk about radiation. So one of the things I try to tell people when I first meet them is here are some of the ideas we have. So my set of questions are, is your appetite returned? Are you needing a nap every day? Were you taking a nap before surgery? Are you still taking a nap every day? If you ask most patients after major abdominal surgery, they're taking a nap after they get out of the hospital. And so they will tell you, I'm not taking a nap anymore, or I still am. Or, you know, I get up for breakfast, I do some things, and then I go lie down for a while. So you try to get a sense of what exactly level of functioning they are. And I ask them, score yourself. Compared to how you felt before surgery, where are you now? Are you 50%? Are you 90%? Are you 75 I usually also ask the spouse because sometimes there is a disconnect. Husband says he's 80%, wife shakes her head and says he's 60%. The truth is usually somewhere in between. So sometimes I say, look, here are the ideas we have. In this particular case, I personally would be interested in some radiation, but I would say things like thinking about your situation with N2 disease, if you were going to take therapy, I would advise some chemotherapy as initial therapy. We would see how that goes, two or three months, restage, and decide at that point, continue chemotherapy. Think about some radiation. What chemotherapy? Well, you know, without seeing the patient, it would be hard. Certainly, I would be willing to offer him a 5-FU-based regimen. Whether I would give him oxaliplatin, I mean, 
if you have somebody who's already, I guess I would say, reluctant to consider therapy, I sometimes aim low and work up, meaning 5-FU, leucovorin, you know, infusional schedule, and then sort of see how that goes, and then maybe consider some oxaliplatin. How about Zolota? Zolota would be another option, I think, particularly if the patient really was firm that, one, I'm not taking IV therapy, and two, that oxaliplatin stuff you mentioned a few paragraphs back, I'm not interested in at all. It's hard for people. I've said this a number of times. Chemotherapy for most patients is an abstract concept. Everybody conjures up this image of, I'm going to lose my hair, I'm going to puke my brains out, I'm going to feel lousy. And when you can express to them, it's not like that. It doesn't have to be like that. It's going to have some side effects. You're going to feel that you're on therapy. But I try to tell them, until you've done it, it's hard to know what it's going to be like. And once you've done it, then you and I can have more of an open dialogue about should it continue, how do we adjust it, how do we make it easier. But the thing that I try to impress upon people, and you know, I certainly don't try to oversell chemotherapy or radiation. It's not the dying that I get worried about with my patients. is what they're going to have to go through before they die. A T4 lesion in the pelvis ain't going to end up pretty. You know, that's a bad situation to be facing. And if you can delay what could be rectovesicular fistula, bad pelvic or sacral pain, you know, these things are real. Ureteral obstruction, all these things are not pleasant. And this particular situation puts them at pretty high risk for some nastiness down the road. Dr. Merchant, can you sort of address these issues? How far out was he from a surgery? Had he totally recovered? I saw him two weeks after the surgery, and he was at that time not ready to listen to anything because his quality of life had gone down after surgery. He was not golfing or he was not moving around. So I said, give it time and see how it goes. So he came back after two, three weeks. He was feeling somewhat stronger, but still, when he listened to the side effects of the treatment, he was not ready. And in his past history, he had one kidney removed for kidney cancer about 10, 15 years ago. And he had coronary artery disease, and he had status with bypass surgery also, and had bladder cancer superficial also. So he had multiple issues going on. So that's why he said at that time he was not ready to take any treatment. So, Rich, if this patient had a different attitude, which a lot of patients have at age 85, and said, hey, I'm healthy, bring it on, how would you have thought through op- you know, what you would consider optimal therapy? And can you talk a little bit more about that and how you'd approach this patient? So a couple of thoughts about this fellow. One question first, did he have a pre-op CEA and was it elevated? He did not do any pre-op, but when I saw him, it was down to 1.5. That was my first CEA. All right. So obviously with positive margins, he has an R1 resection, and so his odds of the cancer coming back are essentially 100%. So in this circumstance, you're not really having a conversation about adjuvant therapy. You're having a conversation about treating advanced disease, even though it's not bulky advanced disease. And I would agree with Bob that you have both systemic issues and local issues that are on your mind when you're talking to him. If this person were 40 and he came to see me, we might take him back to the OR and even give him intraoperative radiation. You know, there aren't very many centers in the U.S. that do it, but we have a LINAC that we can get access to in the OR. How does that work? What do you do? 
you actually can direct the beams using cones that allow you to give very high doses of radiation without the intervening organs. So you can essentially pull the small bowel out of the way and you can give a thousand centigrade in one dose. Do you operate on people to do that? We try not to. We try to anticipate the need for that so that you're operating on people for their primary resection and then if the margins are tight or positive that you go back and radiate at the time that the belly's open. And how long does it take to do this and can you just you have the thing down in the OR ready to yes. go? Yes, so it's part of the operation. You, you know, you have to schedule it ahead of time. And How many of these have you done? Oh, we've done hundreds of them. Really? Yeah. Are so there a lot of centers doing that? No, there are a limited number of centers in the U.S. Do you guys MD do that? MD Anderson, Mass General, Mayo Clinic. We do. I must say that I don't think we would do this as an upfront attempt. When we mostly use interoperative radiotherapy is in the setting of recurrent rectal cancer where a patient is going to have a salvage, typically uh, total pelvic exoneration or posterior exoneration, and the surgeon knows, usually based on MRI imaging, this is going to be tight with the margin, and we're going to do it in the room with IORT. Wow. And when we're done, it typically is 10 gray, a single fraction pop. Oftentimes, the intraoperative radiotherapy is done after Someone has had some external beam radiation therapy, and this is typically part of a global strategy in terms of local recurrence. In this man, I don't think we would take the approach Rich is talking about up front, but if he had clear recurrence that appeared to be resectable, again, with a tight margin, I think that we would advocate that kind of strategy at another point in time. Rich, either this man at 85 or your 40-year-old, would you consider Avastin? I think you're treating this person for advanced disease, and I don't use bevacizumab in the adjuvant setting because it's not been proven, but this is not the adjuvant setting because you know you have a positive margin. And so I would have no problem with it. Now, he has one of the risk factors and one sort of risk factor for an arterial thrombotic event. You haven't said he's had an arterial thrombotic event, but you know he has coronary artery disease and peripheral vascular disease. Has he had an event? He had like a bypass 10 years ago. Right, but he's not had a, Nothing a stroke or an MI in the last year or so, but he's, he's older. He's older. And so the two factors in the Genentech database, when they looked back at their patients, were age and prior ATE. I do treat people who are above the age of 65 with bevacizumab all the time, but I don't treat people who've had a recent acute event. So he's not had a recent acute event. I would talk to him about probably chemo plus Bev. And I think for somebody like this, a really good option would be the LV5-FU2 plus Bev. You remember that was the third arm of the Hurwitz study, the one that was closed early. They only accrued about 100 patients to it, but the curves were not a whole lot different than the full Fox plus Bevacizumab arm. And I don't know what your experience has been with the LV5-FU2, but to me, it's the only toxicity of it usually is the pump-carrying toxicity. <laughs> you know, you have to take a pump to bed with you once every two weeks. What about the issue of oxali and older people? At that think tank in Orlando, one of the docs in the audience sent in a case on the computer of a 92-year-old man with several positive nodes, and you said you'd give him full fox. You know, I give people platin who are older. I have a pretty low threshold for stopping it, though, if they start to get neuropathy problems. 
And most people, you can get away with it for three months without a lot of difficulty. And what I tend to do is look at them and as they start saying, well, you know, the cold-induced neuropathy is now lasting three days, or I'm starting to get some numbness and tingling and it lasts a week. When it starts to get out a week or so, I look to stop the drug. And I keep it in the back of my mind that I stopped it early and may reintroduce it later at another time. How about in this man? In this man, you know, it seems to me that if you're going to get to give him chemotherapy, he's only going to stick with it if he has a very low toxicity regimen. But same number, same age, but totally different attitude. Would you somebody, give oxaliplatin? You know, the oldest person I've treated with oxaliplatin is 92. And she walked with a walker because of arthritis. But, you know, she would get into the pool and swim and do pool aerobics and things like that. And she tolerated it fine. The other thing I would say is taking a graded approach to a patient like this can be useful. You know, you say to them, you know, this is not the kind of chemotherapy that gives chemotherapy a bad name. Let's try it. If you want, we'll try it starting at a low dose. If your experience is bad, we can decide it every time that you come in that we're going to stop it. You know, you're in charge of this. But I don't think you're going to have as bad an experience as you anticipate. And the other thing I would have said to him is, you're not ready for this two weeks out. Your job now, over the next month, is to get yourself back to health, because that's where we want to start from. How late would you consider starting it, assuming it was asymptomatic? The more- Anytime. So if you he know. decided two months later, you treat him. Right. Three months? You know, this is not adjuvant. This right. is advanced Absolutely. disease. So if I it would treat adjuvant, him any time he was ready. If the margin was negative, would that change the timing thing for you? Uh, yes. You know, there was an interesting abstract at ASCO this year that looked it out to 70 days for starting adjuvant therapy. And it was a small study, but it suggested that there was no downside for the patients who were treated late. We don't really know how late you can start adjuvant therapy. Every now and then I'll see somebody who comes in four months, five months later. I usually don't offer them adjuvant therapy. Okay. What happened? So we decided to wait and watch. And the gentleman had to go to Carolina for the summer. So he did a CEA level in September or three, And the CEA was 3.5 now. So he was still asymptomatic when I talked to him on the phone. He came down in December and January. We repeat the CEA again, January 04 now. And his CEA was up to six. So we decided to do the PET scan. There was a lesion close to his sigmoid colon resection and an anterior abdominal wall and in the right upper quadrant area. But his liver, etc., was still clean. And patient was asymptomatic. He was back to his normal self. He was now 86 years of age. So when I explained to him the CE has gone up, the PET scan is positive, so he started looking into the option. I said one option is 5-FU calcium leucovarin, and by that time he brings the Wall Street Journal because the Erbitux got approved around that time, <laughs> or 4 January or February. And we did the CAT scan to confirm these parts, and all were positive. So then we said, well, we can try Erbitux along with chemo, but I didn't have much experience at that time. And after four weeks, Avastin got approved. And this was March of four now. And he said, this sounds like a better drug. I said, I've used that in a couple of patients with colon cancer. And I said, the toxicity is there about the thromboembogenic type of effect and that. But he said, this sounds like a good drug to me. And I said, okay, we can try. And so we went ahead and treated him in March of 04 with Avastin, 5-FU, and calcium leucovorin. And this second PET scan in August... 
And his CEA came down after two cycles right away, and his PET scan returned back to normal. And in December, we had another CAT scan. We stopped the treatment in November because all the disease was gone. And in December, the repeat PET scan was negative, except one area in the right colon. So we did the colonoscopy, and that was negative. There was no local recurrence in that area. So since then, he has been followed expectantly, and he's still alive at 89 years of age. He will be 90 in August. Bob, what's the lesson here? Well, there's a couple of points. First of all, I want to let you folks know that I personally think that PET scans are not necessarily the best way to follow patients with their disease. I think they're being done fairly routinely now. We use PET scans in a fairly limited role at Anderson. We usually use CT imaging to follow our patients. And if we have equivocal findings that we're concerned may represent recurrent or metastatic disease, they may then go on to get a PET-CT. But usually we follow these people with CT imaging. If somebody, in fact, really looked like they completely had a CR, that might be somebody that you would consider a PET scan to sort of confirm that metabolically. But as a general rule, we're not following our patients with PET scans. Number two... This is not something I would have predicted for this patient. And the reason is not because of the situation that you've described. I do think in older patients, I don't know why, but they can have particularly nodal disease that can be quite responsive to therapy. I have seen elderly patients, occasionally with N2 disease, who can smolder along and really see nothing biologically that's bad. What troubled me about your story was literally within a few months, within five months of his surgery, you know, the clock started ticking with a rising CEA and then evidence of disease. That he had such an impressive response surprises me given the initial biology. I'm delighted to hear this. In older patients, though, and I don't know if Rich has seen this phenomenon of sort of nodal disease that can smolder along. You can treat it, go away. Sometimes it comes back, sometimes it doesn't. But his initial biology, I wouldn't have predicted this. Rich, any thoughts about the case? Well, you know, I think when this fellow first presented, he was still potentially curable. And there are a number of patients that we treated at Mayo in particular who had residual disease and even nodal disease that we gave chemo rads to and then operated on and then followed up with adjuvant therapy. I think it's not unreasonable for him to have made the decisions that he made. And, you know, we always wonder what we're treating when we treat a patient's CEA rather than disease or symptoms. I guess I'm a believer based on soft data and clinical experience that treating disease early is probably better than treating it late. You did treat him relatively early in this circumstance, and he kind of took his chemo-free interval at the beginning (laughs) rather than taking a chemo-free interval in the middle. And it worked for him. You know, it sounds like he had a couple of years when he had good quality of life and wasn't sick and then made the decision to go with chemo and, and a biologic later and got some benefit from it and is still ticking along. You know, the other thing that this brings up is in the 9741 study that I ran, which was the IFL full fox versus IROX, we just presented an abstract that showed that we have a 10% five-year survival in those patients. And previously, we'd done a study back in the Mayo regimen days of 5-a-few where the five-year survival was about 1%. 
And not all of those patients had resection. Some of them just got chemotherapy. Were some of them free of tumor? Some of them were free of tumor. Not very many, but a few were. Do you think patients should know that that can happen? Or is it like false optimism? Well, I tell people that every now and then we'll have somebody that does incredibly well. And they'll get a complete response. And five years later, we can't find any of the cancer. And we don't know how those people are going to do at 10 years because we don't have the follow-up yet. But my perception is that as our drugs get better, there are going to be some patients with advanced disease who are cured. How did this man do with the Bev 5-FU Lucavorin? He did excellent. He had no ill effects from it at all. What's his attitude now? Do you think if you had to treat him again, he would be open to more active therapy or still with the same approach? Now he will be ready to be treated because he got good benefit out of it. We hear this kind of scenario in breast cancer, too, that people don't want everyone to get chemo and then they get hormones or Herceptin. They see that, you know, you guys have something to offer and now they're maybe more open to trying something that has a little more risk. Bob, any other final thoughts about this case? Not really. I'm not certain that he's cured. He may be cured. No, I don't think he's cured. I'm sure he's going to have his disease come back. If he were to ask you, give me your best guess, doctor, what's the chance that in five years I'll still, assuming I'm alive, still be free of clinical cancer? I would say it's probably 3 to 5%, but that's better than 0%. Dr. Garrido? I have a comment on the PET scans in follow-up of patients with metastatic disease. The situation where I typically use it is when I think a patient has a resectable metastatic disease, just to make sure there is no additional metastasis. But in addition to that, there are cases where it will be helpful to have them. I'll give you an example. patient with a residual abnormality in the CAT scan in the liver after the typical 12 cycles of chemotherapy, if you do a PET scan and it's negative, I have plenty of patients like that that just are followed, and over time, they don't show any activity. Why not? I'm not saying you shouldn't get PET scans. I think you should have reasons for getting PET scans, and I don't think following disease needs PET scans. No, they never Is that a financial resource thing or a clinical thing? I just, a good contrast-enhanced CT is, I think, a better indicator of what's going on. I mean, I can't tell you how many people are followed with PET scans, have negative PET scans. The doctor feels comfortable with how things are looking. They come to us because their CEA is rising, and you can see in a visible way, in an obvious way, peritoneal disease or liver mets. When you do a PET CT, which seems to be the new phenomenon, what you get is a non-contrasted CT scan. I have a man who he was told they can't see my liver met, but it shows up on PET. And the reason they couldn't see his liver met, because they didn't do contrasted CT. And if you did a contrasted CT, you could not only see his liver met, you could see nodal disease and peritoneal stranding. What about this issue of the patient being considered for curative resection? That's an entirely different situation. And there, I don't want to say we do that routinely, but certainly that would be part of many people's algorithm in terms of considering this patient. I mean, for instance, if this man appeared to have a local recurrence that was going to be salvaged. I mean, I think the difference between Rich and I is that if he had local recurrence, I think he could have been salvaged. I'm not certain we would say, we're going to go ahead and try this up front. And the reason is, is the N2 disease doesn't make anybody feel good about his peritoneal risk. I mean, I worry about peritoneal disease and N2 disease an awful lot. If nothing was showing up, he had a local recurrence, 
I think we would advocate getting a PET scan to try to ensure there's nothing obvious on the radar screen that is stopping us from trying to salvage him. Rich, one of the things about the database which you presented at ASCA, which even though it was, quote, about the elderly, it was over and under 70. Right. And you said there were very few people over 80. There were very few people over 80. So you got all these people out here. Do you right. want to do a trial or something with over 80 plus? You know, in some ways, I don't know that you want to do a trial, but maybe a registry of 80-year-olds would be a useful thing. That's interesting. I mean, I think one of, the, one of the other things is I think there's 80 and there's 80. Right. And, oh, yeah. Um, no and I think what we're, you know, if right now the new 50 is now the new 40, the other way around. I mean, there are 80-year-olds that are very active, that are physically active, mentally active. And those people, one probably should look at them as closer to 70 and treat them appropriately. Because even at 80, if you look at what is their 10-year mortality, it's going to be significantly higher than the 80-year-old that comes hobbling in after three strokes and an MI and vascular disease. This is what we were referring to as the eyeball test, is that there is 80 and there is 80. And it really takes plunking somebody down in a chair in front of them and talking to them for a little bit. It's not just your eyeball. It's having an interaction that you can tell this person's still sharp, they're very independent, they go out, they golf, they're playing croquet, whatever they're doing, that they're an active 80-year-old as opposed to somebody in the walker, you know, has a very sedentary existence, needs assistance, things like that. Rich, also, you know, relevant to adjuvant therapy in the 80-plus-year-old patient, you know, Dan Sargent presented some stuff at ASCO. That was, I mean, we, not like we haven't seen it before, but it was really great data from the Accent database showing how many recurrences occur at two to three years. So if your patient's going to be alive at two to three years, maybe it's not going to affect their survival, but, you know, they're going to be at risk for relapse and, right. and so morbidity. So 80% of relapses occur within the first three years. Now, that may change, actually, as we get better chemo. We may be pushing that out, and the mosaic data that was presented at this year's ASCO actually showed a survival difference, not at five years, but at six years. And I think that that may be a sign that we're pushing recurrence further out. One of the things that kind of came out as a result of that is when can you tell the patient, you know, pretty good chance, you know, you've passed, I mean, ER positive breast cancer, we now know, and maybe we never tell them that. But maybe the clinical implication also, Bob, in terms of follow-up, do you slow your follow-up down after two, three, four years? Usually after about three years, we slow it down. I mean, I do agree with Rich in the sense, I don't necessarily think that the earlier you treat, the better is always true. I definitely think you want to get started before this patient gets symptomatic because once they're symptomatic, that's a harder situation to deal with. So we would be fairly active or proactive in this patient in terms of watching for the other shoe to fall 